Hey, hey, welcome to episode 56. As always, thank you for hitting that little triangle that points to the right to have a listen to all things movie-related, past, present, and future. Each episode takes a look at films, some of them hailed as among the best of the best, some that did fine at the box office, some that may be pretty much forgotten, and some that may have flown under the radar when they first came out but deserve a revisit. Today's featured film is one of those. It's celebrating its 40th anniversary of the date of its original release on the very date I'm uploading this episode. So that's June 25th, 1982, when movie audiences had the chance to see Blade Runner up there on the big screen. And if you happen to be saying to yourself, 40 years, as in half a century, man, that's old, then permit me to react to such a statement accordingly. Ouch! and humbly, but humbly, suggests that we call to mind the words of actress Lauren Bacall, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Blade Runner, a sci-fi film that was a box office flop when it first came out, but gained a considerable cult following over the years, enough so to warrant a follow-up in 2018. Starring Harrison Ford, Rucka Hauer, Sean Young, M. Emmett Walsh, Daryl Hannah, Joe Turkle, and Joanna Cassidy. It was released in the U.S. and Canada on June 25, 1982, before going out to Japan, Europe, South America, Scandinavia, and Australia throughout the rest of the year. It was directed by Ridley Scott, who also helmed the original 1979 Alien, 1985's Legend, 1991's Thelma and Louise, 2000's Gladiator, and more recently, 2015's The Martian with Matt Damon, and 2021's House of Gucci with Lady Gaga. Blade Runner received two Oscar nominations, one for art direction, which went to Gandhi, and the other for visual effects, which went to E.T. Vangelis, who had just capped an Oscar the year before for Chariots of Fire, was not nominated for the Blade Runner score, to which I say... Say what? Joining me today on Silver Screeners is Rob and Cheeto from the UK. They have a great movie podcast they do together called The Film Geezers. I would definitely recommend checking it out. One of my favorite episodes that they did was where they talked about their favorite film scores. Really good stuff. But as I say, when there's someone coming on this show, I'd rather talk with them than about them, so let me bring on Rob and Cheeto. Our talk is pre-recorded, so once it wraps up, stick around because they'll be the results of the weekly poll as well as the trivia question segment and listener shoutouts. And, of course, this week's trivia question. I should also issue a spoiler alert now. We're going to be talking about Blade Runner in depth. If you haven't seen it or forget a lot of it and don't want anything to be given away, you might want to go watch the film first. Either that or proceed at your own discretion, because from this point on, herein there be spoilers. Rob Cheeto, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to come on over to Silver Screeners to talk about the 40th anniversary of Blade Runner. I want to be sure to give you the chance to introduce yourselves and your show, The Film Geezers, which is a great podcast and a great <laughs> title, too. I love it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm Rob uh, This is my son, actually, Cheeto. Uh, we started the podcast back in April, yeah. I think, of last year. Something to do during lockdown. Yeah, and because yes. we're massive, I've always wanted to do a podcast, and because we're sort of massive film fans, we thought that would be the ideal, the ideal forum to do that. You can also get us on Instagram and the usual Twitter and and everything else. We're available wherever you get your podcasts from. Well, thank you for uh, for having us on your show. Yeah, we really do appreciate yeah. it. Got to say, Blade Runner is one of my favourite films anyway, so I'm quite happy to talk <laughs> about it. <laughs> Yeah, no, 40 years and 40 years and yeah, still going strong, this film. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was 10 years old when it came out in the cinema, so... Um, I wasn't even a fool yeah, then, so... So I would have only ever seen it, I think, initially on TV or maybe even VHS, possibly. I can't exactly remember the first time I saw it. I just know that um, it obviously had an impression on me. Actually, you just answered my first question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> no, I was going to ask you if you remembered, yeah, both of you, if you remember the first time you saw it, what you thought of it then and versus what you thought of it now. Well, I, I remember watching it about three years ago, maybe, and I, I think I watched the original theatrical cut of it. And back then I wasn't really as, as into films as I was now. Like I didn't, re- I, I just put the film on to watch it. I didn't actually look into the film. I didn't look at how like the writing or the cinematography or anything. I just put it on and 
I mean, it, it had a, it had an impact on me, but I, I was just like, this is a great thing where now I can actually appreciate it for what it is now, especially after seeing the um director's cut. So, I mean, like I said, it, it is probably one of the best sci-fi films of all time, you know, and it's almost had an impression on me as well because I'm a very big Ridley Scott fan as well. And, and you can see a lot of his, like, uh, ad background in it, can't yeah, and stuff, yeah, you know, with the yeah. shots he has and stuff. But, no, it's one of the best sci-fi yeah. films of all time. I mean, obviously, I would have seen it back when it was on TV, so on the old TV, so yeah. it wouldn't, wouldn't be widescreen or anything. And I think when you watch it again, you appreciate how, yeah. what a beautiful film it is it's, it's made for like 4k yeah widescreen so, isn't it you know it's, it's i'm surprised it hasn't got a 40th anniversary release no re-release like a lot of films we've been looking in the doing. cinemas and stuff yeah. and we it's just not on which you can't believe that is surprising you think about they're promoting these 40th anniversary screenings of et and you know you, you think that blade runner would be up there too i mean yeah. first time i saw blade runner I didn't quite understand it. I think I was too young. I was probably about 10 years old and it was on a beta tape and my parents had rented it. Huge Star Wars fan that I've always been, Indiana Jones. Oh, is this that other sci-fi movie that Harrison Ford is in? So I'm watching it. I just remember seeing the close-ups of those eyeballs and thinking to myself, <laughs> I'm not following. <laughs> like I said, I was probably 10 years old. Didn't see it again for years. And then uh, when I finally saw it again, years and years later that's when i really began to appreciate it for everything that it has to offer like you just said the visuals the i, I love the music i can't believe the music was overlooked for an academy award nomination but the the visual effects the art direction all of it was just really ahead of its time yeah so it's so like she was saying you know um really scott's background he was at college um he actually helped to set up the film school i think there went into doing uh, TV commercials. Most famously was the the Apple one, uh, 1984 one that was shown through during Super Bowl. Mm. So you can tell, you can tell it's a really Scott film mm. because every shot is really framed so well. And it is like watching, almost like watching the commercial. Yeah. But like 100%. I say, it's, it's a beautifully shot film, I think. And you think about how, for as beautifully shot as it is, it's a shame that when it came out, it was such a flop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, it, it came out at the same time as ET, and I guess I think the the mood at the time is they were wanting more upbeat sort of films, and you had things like Blade Runner came out more dystopian. Mm. You also had the Thing, which I think suffered the same problem. Yeah, it did. That. Yeah, yeah. It picked up a cult following, and obviously with the introduction of like VHS, it's now sort of a, a seen as a, a cult classic, I yeah. suppose, isn't it? A cult classic that even got a big budget sequel a few yeah. years back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was released on, at least here in the States and in Canada, it was released on June 25th of 1982, which was, as you said, right on the heels of E.T., yeah. Poltergeist, movies like that. Yeah. Those were both Steven Spielberg productions. So the studios were really, I think there was a lot more clout associated with Spielberg's name at the time. Yeah. I mean, Ridley Scott had already done Alien, but in terms of, big big names it was you know this you can see why the studios would have put their money yeah promoting the spielberg stuff poltergeist opened up at number one the following weekend et was released it knocked poltergeist down to number two so spielberg is holding the top two slots throughout the entire month of june yeah so along comes blade runner it's only natural that it's going to get squashed yeah i'm not sure when it opened in the it probably would have been a few months after that because yeah. because back then films I think sort of maybe four, four to six months after opening in the US, it would open in the UK, I think. The film opens with an opening scroll, and it says, early in the 21st century, the Tyrell Corporation advanced robot evolution into the nexus phase of being virtually identical to a human known as a replicant. The nexus six replicants were superior in strength and agility, and at least equal in intelligence to the genetic engineers who created them. They were used off-world as slave labor. After a bloody mutiny by a Nexus 6 combat team in an off-world colony, replicants were declared illegal on Earth under penalty of death. And so that is the setup of the story. You have these, I guess you could call them refugee replicants from these off-world colonies who are here on Earth. They're among us. You don't know who's a replicant, who's a natural human being, and... Harrison Ford, his character, is the Blade Runner, the titular Blade Runner. It's a creative concept, 
Yeah. I mean, it's sci-fi through and through. Yeah. But again, it's got that film noir look about yeah, it. Yeah, it does. Because obviously the original release had the voiceover, didn't it, at the start? Which Harrison Ford's voiceover, very, which he hated. Yeah, very film noir. <laughs> yeah, I believe it was the, the producers wanted that, didn't yeah. they? But yeah, it's, it's kind of almost like... Um, it's a traditional detective story, but set in the future. Yeah. Almost. You kind of have that Humphrey Bogart, Sam Spade yeah. kind of feel to the character of Rick Duckett, who's... Even his sort of costume, he wears a long sort of raincoat. Yeah. Which yeah. You, you sort of, uh, yeah, like identify 40s, with, it, maybe, yeah. with the old sort of 50s detective films as well. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I would say that Sean Young's character definitely fits the mold of the femme fatale. Yeah, you yeah. can see her as the Mary Asta from Maltese Falcon or the Lana Turner from Postman Always Rings Twice. So, you know, from some of those classics, um, the whole notion whole, of is she a human? Is she a replicant? Yeah, because he's set, I think, 2019, isn't it? In Los mm. Angeles, Los Angeles, November 2019. Yeah, dystopian vision of this city as polluted and, and crowded, heavily industrialized. We've got that multicultural influence as well. So you've got like the the neon signs everywhere. Mm. So you could be in downtown Tokyo or in New York. So it it's, doesn't really fix the place other than being, if you didn't know it was LA, you probably wouldn't have no. guessed it, I don't think. No, no, not if it didn't sell you. Yeah. Which is probably why they also wanted to have the scroll, the opening scroll at the beginning. Yeah. As you said, the studios, the studios felt that the audiences just wouldn't yeah. get it yeah. without the explanation at the beginning. I think it would work without a without an actual specific place because a lot of films are set like that that don't actually have a, a specific setting. Yeah, it's not key, is it, to no. the actual film? No. Yeah, no, it's it's the fact that it's Los Angeles is really it's irrelevant. It's a setting and nothing more. So I think that's the whole the sole design of it is so that you could be anywhere yeah. in, in the world. The way sort of the world is getting to now is like a lot of the big cities, they all look the same. So, you know, mm. you could be anywhere in the world. As long as it's an urban setting, yeah, I think that it serves the story well. Like you said, it could be Chicago, could be London, could be Tokyo, could be Los Angeles, it could be anywhere, it could be Boston. Like you said, with the sort of dystopian look, it's, it's very dark. You, it's raining a lot of the time. Even during the day, you've got the smog and the pollution, mm. which makes it dark as well. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of an interesting design. Does it come from Midley, though? Is that maybe his what his idea was of of, or does it come from Philip K. Well, Dick believe, himself? No, I believe the actual the actual art director. Uh, I can't remember his name. I think he was asked to do some mock-ups, um, and then he was then asked to basically be the art director on the film. But they couldn't call him art director because he was non non union or something. So oh. that's why he couldn't. But um, mm. yeah, so I think a lot of the look of the film came from him. Yeah, he just couldn't get an on-screen credit as the art director yeah, I think or a set designer. Visual consultant or something oh, like yeah. that. Something, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, consultant. I think that was the term they were able to use legally without having to worry about violating the uh, the rules of the guild. Yeah. But the opening scene has a character, Holden, who's a human being, interviewing... Yeah. Leon, the... Um... Leon. Yeah. Couldn't remember the name. Yeah. <laughs> he's interviewing Leon and he's asking him all these questions to see whether or not he shows any uh, shows any emotion. He's using that device. Yeah. I guess it's sort of like a lie detector test, only it doesn't detect lies, it detects emotions instead. Because yeah. that's the whole idea of the, the Nexus is that the only way you can differentiate them from humans is their emotional response. Yeah. And that's why they ask yeah. them the questions that would make any human being at the very least, blink twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that obviously doesn't end well for Holden. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about my mother, he says. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's the, kind of the first insight into what a replicant is mm. and, and introduction to that, I guess. Well, well also... you, you know this off from the start because they don't, they don't straight away say this is a replicant. You just know there's somewhere off with the guy, don't you? And... Yeah, as the more of the questions are asked, you're like, that's not how a normal human would respond to that, you know? And, and yeah, there's just something wrong with this guy. I was just saying, the story is that six replicants, they escape, don't they? Mm. Um, and I think they slaughter 23 people. Um, they're surprised that they're, actually they're coming back to Earth because they think they would, have, they would have tried to escape somewhere yeah. else. And I think two of them actually killed trying to break into the Tyrell Corporation. Mm. 
and then there's four replicants left, and that's kind of the storyline for Deckard, isn't it? He's hunting down these these replicants, and Leon is the first one of these this group. The four remaining replicants, yeah, yeah, because then that's when Deckard is told, "Okay, here's what you're doing. You're hunting them down. These four, you're retiring them. That was the word they used. Yeah. You're not killing them. You're retiring them." De- technically, Deckard had quit, hadn't he? Yeah, and he was kind of brought back in because he's like the, the best there is, isn't yeah, he? After Holden had, had been killed, mm. um, he's brought back in then reluctantly, I think. Yeah, <laughs> he well, didn't want anything to do with it. But then the chief says something like, "If you're not police, then you're one of the little people, or something like." I can try and paraphrasing, but something like that. Mm. So if basically, if you're not police, then you're nobody. And would you rather be somebody than nobody? And I think that's what draws him back in, I guess. And then when they're watching the footage of the uh, the Voight comp test, yeah. yeah, they're watching the footage and Bryant, his boss Bryant, is explaining to him what these, like you said, that these replicants have killed 23 people and they stole a shuttle to Earth, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, because they're supposed to be, like you say, more physically stronger, more mm. intelligent, just better humans than yeah. you. Well, they're made for slave labor, aren't yeah. they? Slave labor. Mm. Yeah. The way that Bryant is introducing these replicants that Deckard is assigned to hunt on and retire, it reminded me a lot of Superman when Marlon Brando is introducing General Zod, Ursa, and Non. He's mentioning them by name and he's giving a little, like a character sketch almost, a biography of each one. Yeah. You know, he says General Zod, he's, his only desire is to rule. And here we have Ursa, who. <laughs> Her only wish is to rule by his side, and then Non, who has no thoughts, no voice. That's kind of the way that Brian is introducing the replicants to Deckard. Yeah. That, that was one of the first things I thought of. You know, he's introducing Roy Batty, the most advanced and intelligent of the group. He's introducing Zora as a trained off-world assassin. He says, talk about beauty and the beast. She's both. Yeah. So that line right there yeah. tells you everything you need to know about Zora. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they don't actually need a backstory then, do they? You, you know exactly what the characters mm. are right from that point. Yeah, it's like woven into this expository dialogue that just yeah. saves a lot of time. <laughs> it helps yeah. to get the story. Like, like with a lot of films, they go out of the way to try and explain who people are, mm. but this doesn't, doesn't do it in that way. It's just quick and efficient, yeah. in it? And yeah. you can move on then. Into the action. Yeah. Which is what they're there to see, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you have uh, Pris, played by uh, Daryl Hannah, who went on to be the mermaid in Splash. <laughs> yeah, and she's what described as a pleasure model. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that cracked me up, because I'd forgotten that Daryl Hannah was in this. All right, okay. Yeah, so yeah. I was just expecting her to sprout fins any second. <laughs> <laughs> and then Leon, of course, the one who shot Holden in the beginning. Yeah. And then it's, it's kind of a traditional detective story. Then yeah. We're trying... Um, Deckard trying to hunt them down. And then you've got the kind of the other storyline, which is the replicants trying to uh, get to meet Terrell, who's their creator. And as it's described sort of later in the film, their um, father, wasn't he, calls him yeah. father. Who was in the theatrical release is, uh, <laughs> he didn't call him father. No, no, he said, oh, because I was reading about that. Yeah, because he was told to say father, but make it sound like fucker yeah. for, for <laughs> the TV and, and theatrical release, I think. I don't know. If fucker, I think, is more of a, it's got more of a Terminator vibe to it. Yeah, definitely. But yeah. by calling him father, it's got more of a Frankenstein vibe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I can sort of see the merits of both, yeah. you know, so if you're looking for powerful that. dialogue. Yeah, it's, it's very much a Frankenstein story as well, I guess, when, when your creature meets your creator. Mm. And it basically says, you know, we didn't ask to be created. Take care of my limitations. Yeah, yeah. And that, that then throws up all these philosophical arguments about humanity and what makes a human a human and all that kind of thing as well. And not to get too ahead of ourselves, but I always, now I say I always, but at the end of the film, the climax of the film, when Deckard is dangling from the top of the skyscraper and Roy saves him. Yeah. And I always wondered about that because if Roy is truly as bloodthirsty, well, maybe not bloodthirsty, yeah. but if he's as vengeance driven or if he's as determined, is it because he knew that he was going to die anyway? Like, what was his, what was his, like, what are your thoughts and why he would have made the decision to save well, Harrison Ford? He, he gives the, the famous tears in rain mm. speech. So 
and at the end of it, he says, "Time to die." So he must have known. Yeah, his time was coming to an end, wasn't it? Uh, like, I don't know if I'm stepping on your toe, but replicants as a counter, um, as a failsafe, they were given a four-year lifespan, weren't they? Four years, yeah. That's the, they they determined that there's a possibility they could actually start to develop their own emotions. And to yeah. sort of counteract that, they were given memories because obviously they're, they're, not, they're not emotionally matured. So they were given memories to make them more controllable. So I'm guessing that he would have he would have known that his, his sort of time was coming to an end. And you think it was meant to be a fake out when he said time to die, that no, the idea no. was no. we were supposed to think that he meant Deckard at first? Or? But it's the whole thing with the dove as well. <laughs> <laughs> so what's that about? What is that? Is that some kind well, of... Well, a lot of that actual last bit um, actually came from Rutger Hauer himself. Originally, Ridley wanted it to be this massive fight scene in the gym, but Rutger Hauer was like, that's too Bruce Lee for me. So it turned into this chase, what we got, and a lot of the actual monologue at the end, he cut out and then he added the, the tears in the rain. So maybe only Rutger Hauer knows fully what, what that final scene means, but yeah, a lot of it yeah. came from him. It's what's what's more human than actually saving someone's life, maybe. And like you say, yeah. it's, it's that kind of juxtaposition between him being this kind of, like you say, bloodthirsty robot, as it were, and being human mm. <laughs> and showing humanity towards somebody. Yeah. Well, speaking of humanity and humane thoughts, and I want to uh, talk a little bit about the character of Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the character of Rachel and what she is supposed to be all about, because she, unlike the others, has no idea that she's a replicant. Oh, that's right. No, not at first. This is similar, similar to like being, I don't know, being in the Matrix. You know, it's it's because always Decker's sent over to Tyrell Corporation because he's told they've got a Nexus Six there and he's going to administer the Voigtkampf test on on them. And he doesn't realize that Rachel is a replicant. And he, he says, doesn't he, does she actually know? And she doesn't. Mm. And you think, kind of think, is, is that part of the experiment? That if they don't know they're a replicant, then they think they're human? Because he's asked, isn't he, by Tyrell, how many questions did it take? And he said, normally it's between 20 and 30. And for Rachel, it was over 100 questions mm. before he was able to fully determine that she was a replicant. It's like, you know, if, if, somebody, doesn't, if somebody doesn't know they're not human, then... Does that not? Does that make them not a human? I don't know. It's one of those arguments again. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that there are a lot of these deep philosophical questions that the film raises that you don't typically get. No, at least not to this depth. Yeah, in a movie of this genre, which I think is to the movie's credit. Yeah, this is it's getting a question of nature of humanity. It's like it's a is an artificially generated human a human, and if you artificially generate something, does that mean you own it? Can you own another person? Which goes back to the whole slavery yeah. uh, thing as well. Yeah. Do they not have the same rights as everybody else then? I keep going back to uh, Dr. Evil and Mini-Me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, right, Rachel is a, a, kind of a, an interesting character, I think. He actually starts to develop feelings for her, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and he kind of hates himself for that. Because his job, obviously, is to hunt down and, and kill a replicant. And here he is developing feelings for a replicant. And then, obviously, later on in the film, he's, he's in a bar and he invites her to come down. And then she ends up saving his life uh, when he's, he's in a fight with Leon. And Leon's about to, to kill him. And then, obviously, I don't want to jump ahead, but going to the end of the film, you know, they in the original theatrical release, they take off together, don't they? And... Uh, disappear into the into the um into the sunset which was unused footage from the shining yeah yeah so yeah it's it's, it's hard to describe what's what what the point of rachel's character was well she was introduced as terrell's personal assistant and Deckard is asking her questions as you said he asks her over a hundred she has no idea that she's a replicant and it's once he reaches that many questions that's when he begins to realize that she is yeah She's upset. She turns to Terrell afterwards and, you know, why did I not know this? <laughs> like, how did you, how did he know? Why didn't I know? And she refuses to believe it at first because she shows the picture. Yeah. She shows, De she shows up at Deckard's apartment and shows him the picture of herself and her mother. 
See, I have a memory here. I have a memory here. And then yeah. she realizes all the memories are implanted mm. that they were Terrell's niece. Well, maybe that was that was going to be the next generation nexus. That if they didn't know that they were replicants, they they would assume they were humans, and maybe be more controllable. And that's probably the key word there is control, controllable. Yeah, yeah. owning another human, like you said. Yeah, yeah. But then, is it fair not to tell somebody if they're not human? But if you are, like, say, if you feel human, then does that make you human? It's, it's like, like you say, one of these arguments. The scene that I wanted to take a look at next is when Pris and Roy, Pris and Roy, they coerce Sebastian to use his connection to Terrell to arrange a personal meeting. Yeah. And Sebastian, it's with hesitation, but he agrees. So they go to Terrell's home and they take an elevator up to his penthouse and they're stopped, but they're allowed to proceed when Sebastian voices two moves to Terrell himself that win that chess match. Yeah, yeah. And then Sebastian introduces Roy. Terrell seems to have been expecting Roy for some time. Yeah, because he says to him, and he said, did he say, I, expect, I expected you sooner? And he said, well, mm. you're a very hard person to, to see because they'd obviously tried to get to Terrell before and failed by breaking into the building uh, when two of the other replicants were killed. And obviously they, they tried to go through uh, the guy who manufactures the eyes as well. I think him and Leon went to see him to try to get to Terrell. And then obviously Jeff Sebastian, um, he's a genetic engineer that created some of the code for the replicants, I think. Um, and like you say, the, him and Terrell are playing this kind of long distance chess match. <laughs> and that's the that, like you say, as, a, as an excuse to be, to be able to see Terrell. And he seems to welcome him um, uh, right at first, doesn't he? As like the prodigal son, that's kind of what he calls him. Yeah, it's all, it was weird. It was like a homecoming yeah. almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but I guess if you you do feel that way again, it's again going back to Frankenstein. Um, you know, initially Frankenstein embraces the monster, but then soon rejects him. I guess in this way as well, but doesn't actually reject him, does he? He kind of embraces him, and and as the, like I say, the prodigal son, obviously proud of proud of his creation. And it's almost like once he, once a creation serves its purpose, then it's yeah. something to be feared and something to be, you yeah. know, something to, you know, to reassert your control over, to be sure that it doesn't develop too much of a mind of its own. Um, and what they're there for is, is to basically tr try to find a way to, to get around this four-year lifespan. To, to, they only want what everybody wants, and that's life, mm. to live longer. What the basic animal instinct is, yeah. is to, to live. To live, right. And then when when uh, Terrell says there's nothing that they can do, um, that's when he gets angry and basically kills Terrell. So he kind of kills his father. So that's like a tradition, traditional Greek tragedy. I say it's a very Oedipus Rex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But I, I, I suppose it had to happen, didn't it? it had, mm. The creation had to kill the creator, maybe. I think if the story is to come full act, you definitely need to have that kind of... Because that's kind of the ultimate revenge, isn't it, I guess? Revenge, yeah. Or killing your father, kind of. You made me what I am, so... You made me. I didn't ask to be created, but here I am, and my lifespan is four years. You controlled that. Yeah. You know, do something about that, and if not, then <laughs> revenge. <laughs> Yeah, and then, then it's, he, he actually kills Sebastian. That's not actually shown, is it, on screen, but it's just implied that, that he, he kind of has to clear up any loose ends, I suppose. I wanted to talk about both versions of the ending and how yeah. they reflect the difference in vision of Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott. Yeah. Now, in the original ending, as you said, Deckard and... Rachel. Rachel, I almost called her Lola. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I was thinking, run, Lola, run. So <laughs> uh, Deckard and Rachel, they drive off in a presumably happy ever after scene. And that was something the studio wanted. That's right. And Ridley Scott was never happy with that. So, you know, later on, he just gets into the elevator with her once he sees that origami of the unicorn. So is the implication, and I, you know, it's, it's always up for interpretation, those kinds of, this kind of ambiguity, but it almost seems that he was stepping into the elevator with her 
was he stepping into the elevator with her in this end in this ending to retire her or was he stepping into the elevator to ignore the fact that she was a replicant and just to be with her for as long as he could given the time the lifespan i think the origami is um an important focus because obviously he had sort of the he was daydreaming earlier about when he's playing the piano about the unicorn and that's sort of random why would a human daydream about that and it was almost like it played out like it was a memory of his and what was what was the line um that gaff said about the the unicorn after he he, he, he gives him his gun back yeah. doesn't he decker's gun and i can't think of the line now because gaff obviously he'd been to the apartment yeah uh, rachel was sleeping so he could have retired her at any point but but left her alive but then he left the origami there yeah. on purpose obviously to show that he'd been there um, well, I, I think it shows that I, I think that gaff maybe went through files knew who deckard was because i know it's up in the air whether deckard was a replicant himself or not and maybe that's that fact that he knows that he that he daydreamed about a unicorn maybe that that's implanted sort of memory that that can point to that the fact that deckard is actually a replicant maybe I think you know. Yeah. I, I like I like the ending to, to be ambiguous. Yeah. Um. It's it's difficult to once you've seen the original, not to think that it's a happy ending, that he's actually going off with her. Yeah. But like you said, it, it could be that he's actually going to go turn her in, or, or like you say, to um, retire her. Mm. I like it though. I like endings. I really don't know. You know. I like endings <laughs> where you can you can take out. <clears throat> out of it what you want you know you can come up with your own ending for it sort of you know it's not in your face you know you like i said because it's not a very clear ending is it so you can sort of make up what you what you sort of want the ending to be sort of things so. yeah. i suppose whenever they do make sequels to movies that have ambiguous endings they sort of fill in the gaps yeah yes so the fact that harrison cool. ford and sean young are both in yeah the follow-up i think that <laughs> Yeah. That pretty much answers a few of those questions for us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'd like to, personally, I'd probably think it's a it's a happy ending. Yeah, they, I do. Yeah, I think so. Before we get into the trivia and the fun facts, there was one other area that I did want to ask you about. Has either one of you read the book? No. no the Philip Dick book. I looked a few years, couldn't get a copy of it in the UK. It's something I would like to do. But I don't know, because... When you read, when you watch a film and then read the book, I don't know if it spoils it. The whole point, you know, the book is you make up your own. Yeah. You know, did you read the book before you watched the film? I read the book probably about eight, maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. So I don't remember much of it. No. But I do remember the fact that the book and the film are so different. Yeah. Even more different than, say, the film and the book of The Shining. Yeah. Like the, just the differences between the two are just so astronomical. In the book, he's married. Rick Deckard is married. He has a wife named Iran, and which I I can't explain. Uh, the book takes place in San Francisco yeah. in 2021, yeah. and there was a world war, World War Terminus, right? That you know that wiped out you know life on Earth. So the Earth is covered in dust, very little sunlight. So the setup is fairly similar. Yeah. You know, colonizing other planets to basically to have more options for living, you know, for the survivors. Yeah. They built the Nexus sixes, superhumans, that kind of thing. Yeah. That surpassed the creators and intelligence. They weren't called replicants, were they? I think they were called androids. Yeah. They were called androids. Andes, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Yeah. Did the film influence your, when you read the book, did that have kind of a, I read the book before I revisited the film. Right. So I will say that I'm not going to say that the book was going over my head, yeah. but it was very, very, it was very layered. Right. Yeah. Meaning that 17 different storylines are going. That's what Ridley Scott said, actually, to, to the author, to Philip Dick. Uh, he couldn't read through, he couldn't get through the book. He said, Ridley Scott didn't really mince words. He said, you have 17 different storylines, but page two. The thing of it is, though, is that he was right. <laughs> I'm not saying I didn't like the book, but it was not linear mm. in the traditional sense of the word. And the ending was ambiguous. I'd recommend reading it. Yeah. I wouldn't say that it's better than the film. I wouldn't say that the film is better than the, than the novel or the short story or whatever it's actually technically called. 
I will say that it's really, it's, it's apples and oranges. It's two different stories, just like The Shining. So really it's a matter of, okay, so do you prefer this version of Rick Deckard who has a potential love interest in the film? Yeah. Are you going for the guy instead, the version of the guy who has a wife and has these keeping up with the Joneses almost kind of mentality as does everybody else, taking a look at your neighbors and you know coveting their actual sheep versus their Android sheep, yeah. for example. Yeah, and you don't really have that in the film, this whole notion of these uh, these android animals. It's more the android human the android humans that they focus on. So it's it's, it's touched on a little bit, isn't it, with the owl and the snake. But it's because it, in the in the future the a lot of animals are going extinct, aren't they? Mm. And so they started off by replicating animals initially and then humans, I think. That's that's what they did. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's one other thing about that, too, is that in the book, there was almost a code of etiquette. You did not turn to anybody to ask them if their animal is real or an android. That would be a total breach of manners. Right. Okay. Was the uh, the mindset. So one of the running themes of the book is, I mean, just take a look at the title. It's, uh, you know, desire and competition and and petty jealousies and that kind of thing. Philip Dick, when he heard the movie was being put into production, he did not want that to happen. He did not want a film version made. He was against the idea, but when he did see sort of a, a rough cut or a rough footage put together, he changed his mind and he did speak highly of it. Because yeah. he, he didn't get to actually see the whole film, did he? I think he died before it actually was released. I, th- I think the initial adaptation, I think it was Hampton, Hampton Fanshawe, was it, who did the original adaptation? The earlier draft, yeah. Um, and I think Philip Dick, okay, Dick hated it to the point where I think he actually wrote to the production company expressing how much he hated it. Um, and then I think it was, was it David Peoples was brought in to do rewrites actually as, as they went into production. And then there's some, like, like Chito was saying, there was some input from Rutger Hauer on some of his lines and things as well. But yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, you say Philip K. Dick, I think, approved of the final sort of script and whatever he saw of the, whether it was a rough cut of the film or, or Daily Rushes or something, I don't know, but I think he, he did approve of it eventually, didn't he? He did. He did approve of it, yeah. I suppose, though, if you spend a lot of blood, sweat and tears into writing a story of your own, if it really comes, you know, from something deep within you, you get very protective of it. It's unusual for for a, uh, for a film not to involve the original author uh, to some extent in the screenplay. I think it depends on whoever owns the rights to the film, really, how much involvement they want the writer to have. Yeah. <laughs> You'd you kind of think it makes sense to have the... Well, did, did they not ask him to do the original screenplay and he said he didn't yeah. want to do it? I don't. I think they actually asked him to do the screenplay and he's like, I don't want to do it. Yeah. For whatever reason. It's similar to J.D. Salinger, who never wanted Catcher on the Rye to be made into a movie. And that's in his will for his estate to make sure that it never happens. I guess some just really, they're just very, some authors are just extremely, like I said, protective. They have a vision that they will not be deterred from no matter how much money talks. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of his short stories have been adapted, haven't they, to, um, to films? It seems to be a, a popular author for science fiction. Yeah. Now I think is a good time for us to pivot towards a trivia competition here. I do have a couple of questions that I prepared. I have two questions for each of you. We can alternate. And do you have any that you have as well? Uh, we've got, I've got two. Yeah, we've got yeah. two each as well. Yeah. God help me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the guest, so you go first. Take it away. Go well, first. Yeah, I'll go first. Um, it's just for anyone to ask, yes. It's a free for all, is it? Yeah, I've not seen his questions okay. and he's not seen mine. So, well, I, think oh, my, okay. Okay. I think my first one is quite easy. Um, it's do you know who Ridley Scott first brought on board to play the role of Rick Deckard? Any names? I saw this and I'm trying to think here. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this somewhere. <laughs> he was very big around, around, the, around that time. He just recently won an Oscar. Was, was it? It wasn't Dustin Hoffman. You are correct. Yeah. It was Dustin uh, Hoffman. He was the one who initially signed on, but I believe it was the Robert Mitchum was 
early, wasn't he? He was what the original. Yeah, when, I think the original draft of the screenplay uh, was written specifically for Robert Mitchum. Yeah, and another another couple of names was <clears throat> Tommy Lee Jones and Christopher Walken as well. But yeah, Hoffman was the one who who was brought on board um, in 1980, I believe, and he left just due to money, which is. A, <laughs> <laughs> Well, like quite, I said, money talks, I guess. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's quite a common thing, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. So <clears throat> this is to test if you're a replicant, okay? <laughs> you're in a desert walking along in the sand when all of a sudden you look down. What do you see? Uh, uh, tortoise. Tortoise. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question because I originally had that one, but then... okay well one that i have is this what do the police call the flying vehicles that they used as a means of transport flying vehicle you go uh i think they're called spinners spinners yep that's it hey we're doing well here (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) i didn't i did Another little bit of trivia was the um, the display in the spinner is the same as the one from the Nostromo in Alien. Yeah, yeah, I think oh, that was another little bit. And of I trivia. believe I believe a lot of the the screens and the the audio a lot was used from audio um, Alien as well, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, took that from it. Um, see, my questions are more like I'll, I'll go I'll go next for my next one. It's um, do you know what the Blade Runner curse is? Have you heard of that? Oh, for the film, you mean? Yeah. Not for the character? No. Okay, the Blade Runner curse. So every corporation whose logo can be seen went belly up yeah. <laughs> like, within yeah. the next five years. Yeah, you had um, Tari, obviously. They had the, that, the was game a, crash. that was a question that I was going to ask. Was it? Was which company didn't wasn't featured? And I think it was like ibm or something well you had you had atari obviously yeah. the game crash yeah you had pan am who went bust in the 90s i believe yeah rca uh cuisine art and bell phones they all suffered severe business problems in the years <laughs> shortly after blade runner's release as did coca-cola obviously with the new coke yeah <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i remember that one <laughs> But yeah, no, they, they, the members of the Blade Runner production team refer to this as the product placement Blade Runner curse. Those things make for good stories, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the cursed production of. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I think there was a documentary made, was it 2007? Yeah, there was, about, yeah. About the making of. And that's the first time I think Harrison Ford's ever spoken publicly about Blade Runner. Yeah. Because I think he had such a shitty time making yeah. it. <laughs> so many problems, I think, with Ridley Scott. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, they so, used to have loads of arguments, didn't they? Well, I think he said they re- re- reconciled the differences. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, Ridley Scott didn't direct a sequel. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, my second question is what is the Tyrell Corporation's corporate motto? More human than human. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when when do they is it written down or do they say that? Is it Terrell no, himself? I think Terrell says actually it? says it when oh. he, when he first He's... meets Deckard. I think he does say mm. that you know our aim is or our motto is more human than oh. human. Yeah. Doing really well. <laughs> well, the next one I have is actually one that has already been brought up: oh. the movie Alien. Yeah. With the escape pod separating from the Nostromo. That's when Gaff picks up Deckard in the flying car and the launch sequence in the computer screen is exactly the same footage. So no. that takes care of question number three. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my last question, number four, is this. Pris, the mermaid, yeah. is the basic pleasure model. So it's only appropriate that her incept date falls on what holiday in the year 2016. I think I read that. I think it's the 14th of February. Yeah, Valentine's, is it? Valentine's I'm guessing. Day. Valentine's Day, oh, February yeah. 14th. Yep. <laughs> nice little details like yeah. that, isn't it? <laughs> that, was, that was a tough question. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know the question. I just, I just sort of assumed it. <laughs> One of mine is what, what origami animal does Gaff leave outside Deckard's apartment? And we'd already answered that anyway. Oh, okay. the... oh the unicorn, right. Yeah. 
that's good because that's proven to everybody who's listening that this is not prearranged. <laughs> this is not a setup. This is not. Uh, <laughs> this is not rigged. <laughs> All right, and that brings us to the final segment that I have here for this episode, which is the behind-the-scenes fun facts. Right. And like the trivia questions, a few of them have already been uh, <laughs> have already been mentioned, which is great. Again, you're the guests. Right. I invite you to. <laughs> I yield the floor to you to well, offer the first one. One of mine was going to be that the opening, the, sorry, the closing shot from from the original theatrical release was unused footage from The Shining, um, and it was I think it was filmed in a different aspect ratio. So when it was sort of spliced into the film, it distorted the car slightly to make it look a bit more futuristic. I think. And really Scott bought a bit of footage off off of Stanley Kubrick. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's obviously because I think he, he was about two days. I th- no, it was, it was going to be, I think they wrapped filming at, at the point where it was about mm. to be fired. Yeah, the, the production team was going to take over in a couple of days. Yeah. If you didn't finish that, wrap the filming up. Which is crazy. Which is another bit of trivia yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's when uh, the business end of things meets the artistic end of things. <laughs> well, one that I have is that test audiences hated the film so much <laughs> that Harrison Ford's voiceover was added. Now, we talked about the voiceover already, but urban legend has it that Ford intentionally botched the voiceover. I heard about that, yeah. But no energy, no emotion. You can hear his trademark grumpiness coming through and his vocal <laughs> delivery. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in the hopes that they would just say, ah, screw it and just, you know, get rid of it entirely. But whether or not that's true, Ford was not a fan of the uh, of the whole experience. He called it, quote, a fucking nightmare. <laughs> he thought the film worked without the narration. But now I was stuck recreating that narration. <laughs> yeah. I believe it was the it was a producer's idea, wasn't it? The actual voiceover wasn't it um and yeah ford just did not want to do it well, see, some audience, audiences are so stupid that, that without the narration they <laughs> yeah. wouldn't know what's going on <laughs> i just don't think that sometimes the studios give audiences enough credit in terms of what they think we're able to pick up on and mm. it's almost like they spoon feed to us because they just want to make it as palatable as possible mm. but it's like it's, it's it's okay we can put two and two together and make four sometimes <laughs> yeah i don't think it needed it whatsoever no. I believe the first shot that was actually was in inside Terrell's office, and I believe that they actually built the pillars the wrong way up, upside down, and it took a day for them to to rewrite it. And then I think Ridley Scott insisted on reshooting those that, those scenes, which took two weeks. So he put he already put them two <laughs> weeks behind and over budget. He was considered his attention to detail, obviously coming from maybe an arty background. Is mm. he he does pay a lot of um, attention to detail just little things you see in the film which don't necessarily need to be no they're just visually there mm. i think he had some problems working with an american crew as well because he wasn't used to it oh that's very possible and very likely because <laughs> um, he's, he's used to sort of setting up the shots looking through the viewfinder and i think they they found that he, he was sort of stepping on their toes a little bit <laughs> I believe the, I can't remember what the cinematographer was called, but I think he was very, very ill at the time. And even, I think he was in a wheelchair. I think he, he died shortly afterwards. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So I think probably Scott maybe had to step in and do a lot of the cinematography yeah. himself, which I think kind of pissed off the American crew. <laughs> <laughs> so he shoved them and said, never mind, I'll do it, I'll do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I think that added to that the whole um, myth around mythology around Blade Runner and the actual making of it yeah. being such a horrible experience for a lot of people. <laughs> well, I have one last thing to point out here in terms of behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. Now, you had already mentioned that the word replicant is not in the book, and it's not. They use the word androids. So the screenwriter, David Webb Peoples, he was nervous that words like androids or andes would sound silly in the film he got the word replicant from his daughter who was studying microbiology and biochemistry at the time she told him about the theory of replication and he said replication (laughs) he says there it is thank you (laughs) probably patted her on the head and said tonight you pick the restaurant and Yeah. And, uh, you know, all for the purposes of cloning, you know, cells yeah. being duplicated for cloning. And yeah. so that's where the that's where the word replicant came from for the uh, for the film version. 
Yeah. That's how I only I only knew that because I'd obviously read the same <laughs> same thing you'd done because I didn't realise it wasn't actually used in the book. So yeah. You got any more? Yeah, well, um he Roger Howe actually got cast. He didn't have to do any sort of um auditions. Yeah, auditions. Ridley Scott saw a number of his films. <laughs> I, I believe the word he used, he liked how cold he was, how Aryan, uh, Aryan he was? Aryan, yeah, he was. So yeah, he, he didn't have to do an audition. And the actual original cut of the film was around four hours long or something. So yeah, whoever had to edit the film, I felt sorry for him because, I mean, apparently a lot of it was just world building stuff. Like it was long shots of the actual Los Angeles skyline and a lot of those, you talk about the cinematography, yeah. just a lot of those, yeah, world, ba- world building aspects of the film. I thought I was long. I mean, I mean, I, I still would have watched it, but I would have watched it maybe in shifts. But I, I still would have watched it. <laughs> but that's got to be one of the toughest jobs when you're in post production. Is if you have to if you have to remove scenes, which scenes do you remove? Which shots yeah. do you remove? People put so much of you know people put so much of their time and effort into you know whether it's actors you know preparing a scene or whether it's the set decorators or whoever it may be. There's always this. There's something involved in the creation of a scene so to have it end up in the cutting room floor i can't even imagine no, what that must be like yeah because i think the whole sometimes whole performances have been edited out haven't mm. they famously oh yeah yeah if you're an actor and this is your first role in a film or if you're making a cameo it's like wow i'm gonna be in a you know i'm gonna be in a ridley scott film and then you get the phone call from your agent or from your management or whoever saying yeah you'll still get paid but uh <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I suppose that kind of thing happens all the time, but I can't imagine it would make it any easier no matter how often it happens. Yeah. Last bit of trivia is Harrison Ford has just come out of Indiana Jones and he was adamant that he didn't want to wear a hat in this. And that's what gave rise to the decked haircut. Because yeah, that also has its own little cult full of yeah, haircut. Does, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I believe you asked your barbers that. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is probably the shortest haircut he has ever had in a movie, at least at that point in his career. Yeah. I like it though. Classic crew car thing. I do like it. <laughs> but yeah. I remember even as a little kid, like long before I knew that that was the reason why, even as a little kid, I remember saying, wow, his hair is cut around his ears and it's cropped in the back and I've never seen that before. And... Yeah, he didn't want to, he didn't want to don a fedora again. Well, were they, were they, were they going to make him have well, a hat? Or... I guess it's that classic detective look, isn't mm. it? The, the raincoat yeah, the fedora, and fedora. Like said, yeah. fedora. Yeah. Fedora, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's it for me. Do you have any other thoughts on the film in general, your impressions of it, or anything that if you were to sit someone down and say, you've got to watch this film, anything you would hope that they take away from it? Well, the one film, what I'm glad now is I always felt like it was very ahead of its time. Um, I always felt that wasn't quite appreciated as well. And now it's just nice to know that maybe it is the right time for a film like Blade Runner. You know, we've obviously got a sequel as well. That is starting to be very much appreciated as classic masterpiece of cinema. Yeah, like I said, I I hold this film very highly, and maybe it just was a case of it. It was too advanced, maybe for the time. Yeah, I think it's definitely a multi-layered film, isn't it? Mm. And I guess you don't always understand the themes. I think you've got to watch it. I think a couple of times. Yeah, because you can take it as as a science fiction film. You can take it as an action film. But then there was the mess. I think the message that is throughout the whole film is that that philosophical argument about what makes a human, yeah, kind of thing. And I'm I'm assuming that was the message that was in the book as well. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. If not just human, also with the animal, just yeah. what is you know, nature? Yeah. Nature versus artificiality. Right from watching it, I'm drawn in. I'm, there's there's no part. Mm-hmm. There's no time when I'm not engaged. I don't think no. of the film. And we like I say we just sat and watched it, and it it doesn't seem like two hours. No, which is always a sign of a good film. I think it's such a dialogue-heavy film, but the dialogue is so intriguing, the story is so intriguing as well that yeah, it just two hours flies by completely, and that's when you know this is an elite-level film. Yeah, certainly one of the, one of the best of it of its kind. And you know, when you when you sat and you're looking for something to watch and you can't make your mind up, I think Blade Runner is one of those that yeah. you could put on. Just put on and <laughs> yeah, know. just lose lose yourself in it. Yeah. It's such an interesting world, such an interesting story, you know. Um Well, actually I was saying, since we've done the podcast, I think you tend to then look at films differently and appreciate yeah. them in different ways. 
you can look at the writing and the, the cinematography and the direction and the acting and everything. Yeah. And I just think this, to me, this is definitely a, a, a five out of five. It's a masterpiece. Film, yeah. I think. And it's, it's Ridley's most personal film as well. He even, yeah. I think it was his favorite. He even come out and said that it's yeah. probably his best work. Um, I mean, it's very odd because he's got some of the best films of all time, but yeah, certainly like I said, a masterpiece of its, of its genre. And it's going to be from years out, it's going to be remembered of as a, you know, the apex of filmmaking, like this is what filmmaking can be, you know, a modern day, late 20th century film noir, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. No, Blade Runner is definitely one that I'm glad that I've seen. Mm. And it is one that I would see again. Yeah. Yeah. I just can't believe it's been 40 years since it came out. <laughs> uh, if people are going to watch it for the first time, watch the director's cut, I mm. think. Yeah. Obviously, that's the most true to yeah. Ridley's original you know, idea of what, yeah. what the film is and was going to be, sort of. So, yeah, definitely the director's cut. And then go back and watch the original <laughs> <Yeah>. and see. <laughs> <laughs> I would normally say, or just go on YouTube to see the scenes that, that you know, that differ. Yeah. But yeah, go treat yourself twice and see the theatrical guy afterwards, <laughs> see the whole thing again. Yeah. 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 We didn't talk about music either, which... No, the I music mean, is, yeah. The soundtrack's legendary. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of cases, the music can be just as important as the visual. Yeah, it just complements the film so much. And um, it, in many ways, it, it, it sort of yeah. um, takes it to that next level as well. Obviously, it was by Vangelis. Yeah. And it's that kind of synth. And that's hard to describe. It is, it's called it's synth, it's jazz, it's blues. It fits the yeah. film perfectly. Like, there's actually a, a piece of music in Blade Runner called Blade Runner Blues. Blade Runner Blues. Blade Runner Blues. Yeah. 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 It's the bit where we actually first see Pris mm. and she uh, meets Sebastian. Oh, outside of the hotel. Yeah, it's very bluesy. Well, I, I think the soundtrack it's, Yeah, it's is, that electronic synth. Well, well the, the film is, is a scientific film noir. Synth is very scientific sounding. Yeah. Jazz and blues is very, of its time, 50s film noir, you know, so. Well, back in 82, synth music was kind of. Brand new, yeah, and it was the thing, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a product of its time, but at the same time, it's also universal. Yeah. I think looking in, you know, in hindsight, it perfectly fits, I think, the film as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a great conversation, and I really appreciate the fact that the two of you accommodated the time difference between us <laughs> and took the time out of a Sunday afternoon, a late Sunday afternoon for you to, uh, to oh, come on and to, to join in. Yeah, we're happy to do so. Yeah, yeah, we just like talking films. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're welcome back anytime. Please say the word and... <laughs> We'll make something we'll happen as well. Yeah. Oh, sometime. Yeah. As well. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Thank we'll, you. We'll yeah. A bit of a, we've had a bit of a hiatus at the moment, but we are going to start. Now. We're back. Yep. So we'd love to have you on if you want to. There's anything you want to um, talk about? Any particular film or genre or whatever you want to do, then you're more than welcome to yeah. come on. 100%. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you both. Okay. So once again, before we leave, I just want to give you another chance to remind everybody of your show, the show's right. name, how to contact yeah, you. We're called The Film Geezers. We've been going about a year, just over a year. You can download our podcast on Apple, Spotify, the usual major po uh, podcast platforms. We do have a presence on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're also uh, on at, um, TikTok at, as well, aren't we? Sorry, at The Film Geezers. And then we do have a TikTok channel where we do some little videos yeah. and we're at the underscore film underscore geezers. Just do a search for film geezers and we should be, should be on there. Absolutely. And it is there. The film geezers, check it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks both of you very much oh, again. Thanks, and thanks. looking forward to collaborating with you again in the future. Yeah, 100%. That's great. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right, that was my conversation with Robin Shido of the Film Geezers podcast. Please be sure to give their show a listen, and I gotta thank them both once more. And here's some more collaborations in the future. And with that, let's run the final lap of this episode before retiring any more replicants. It's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. So the poll question for this episode, number 56, was... Which replicant from Blade Runner would you want on your side? The options were Roy, played by Rukahawa, Pris, played by Daryl Hannah, and Zora, played by Joanna Cassidy. On Twitter, 67% of the votes went to Roy, with Pris cleaning up with the remaining 33. 
and on Facebook in the Silver Screeners group that I hope you join if you're not already there. There was one vote for Zora. Glad that she's not walking away from this poll completely washed out. Five for Pris and eight for Roy. So that brings a whopping total of 12 for Roy, seven for Pris, and one for Zara. As always, thanks to everyone who voted. Involvement like this is the name of the game. And keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, or you can follow me on Instagram at FrankMendoza1974, or you can email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. And now it's time to head on over to the trivia segment. In each episode, there's a different trivia question that is directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the people in them. You're all invited to take a crack at it at any time. I do want to say that I like to err on the side of caution, so I don't announce both first and last names, in case that would make anyone uncomfortable. So I only announce first name and last initial. But if you tell me otherwise, then full names it is. You'll get a shout-out as well as a movie-related meme sent you away with a personalized greeting. And don't worry about timing, either. It doesn't matter what episode you're listening to, however far back or however recent. Just answer any trivia question from any episode at any time. You'll get your meme and your shout-out. And if you're a creator, if you write music, if you design websites, if you're a podcaster, an author, a YouTuber, anything at all, I'm always happy to give your stuff a shout-out as well. So last time, we took a look at two films that dive into complicated relationships between fathers and their grown sons. Tom Hanks plays Jackie Gleason's son in 1986's Nothing in Common, and comedian Will Forte sharpens his dramatic acting chops as Bruce Dern's son in 2013's Nebraska. Dern was up for an Oscar for Nebraska that year, alongside Leo DiCaprio for Wolf of Wall Street. One thing that they also have in common is that both starred in film versions of what classic F. Scott Fitzgerald novel from the 1920s? Dern was in the 1974 version with Robert Redford and Mia Farrow, and DiCaprio was in the 3D 2013 version with Carrie Mulligan and Tobey Maguire. And the answer is The Great Gatsby. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting goes out to the following. Mike W., who co-hosted the local cable movie program Real Life With Me. That's real I-E-E-L. Great times, Mike, and thanks. Also, there's Trevor T. and Gail R., both members of the Silver Screeners Facebook group. Thanks to both of you as well for playing and for your interactions in the group. Definitely appreciated. Also, a friend from college back in the day, Mary W., who had this to say about Gatsby. One that should be watched while sipping a glass of champagne from a classically shaped champagne glass. A beautiful set. Mary, you're definitely speaking my language. You're preaching to the choir here, friend. Great to hear from you. Ah, speaking of Marys, there's also Mary C., of course, who deserves the label of great more than that cad Gatsby. Thank you, both of you, Mary Squared, for the interaction. Also getting the golden memes in the winner's circle are Amanda P., Cool as a bear in a pool since we first met and always will be. As well as return champs Chris from the Movie Psycho Podcast and Ed R. Both of whom also nailed it right in the head with their knowledge of the Roaring Twenties. And finally, my sister-in-law Liz. My fellow outlaw, a former guest in this show in the Dune episode, who needs not one but two shoutouts. As she also earned herself a slot in last week's episode's roster of winners. So Liz, I'm pulling double duty here for you. And thanks to all of you. Keep your eyes open for those memes. And to anyone else listening, what's keeping you? Join the trivia. It's fun. Such as now with this week's question. Previously, we covered a Tom Hanks movie, Nothing in Common. This week, it's a movie with Daryl Hannah, Blade Runner. Name the 1984 comedy that Hanks and Hannah did together, where they fall in love with one small problem. She's a fish. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode or any episode that you've listened to, hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that winds down episode 56. I want to say thanks everyone again for taking the time to listen. I want to thank Robin Shido from the Film Geezers again. Check out their show. And be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. 
And I'll paint your house if you could just take a second to rate or review this show on Apple, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. It helps to boost the show's visibility, and a good, honest review will help me to know what you're looking for more of in this show, as I'm open to any suggestions for future episodes. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies, and until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of an alternate version of Blade Runner, the one that is set in the Roaring Twenties, where Pris and Zora take off like a bat out of hell away from Harrison Ford's Rick Deckard, but instead of dangerous replicants, there's something even more frightening. High society flappers making their way towards Gatsby. <laughs>